Well, once again, good morning. It's hard to believe that we are, uh, we're only a week away from Easter, and I'm thankful that you're all here this morning. I hope you'll come back next week as we uh, uh, set that time aside to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. We have been engaged in a series, Pastor Josh shared with us a little bit last week about John's life, but the series in its entirety has been about redemption. We're looking at, uh, although there are, are literally, I, I think it'd be okay to say there's hundreds of stories of redemption in God's word. We've been taking a few of those, uh, snippet of those stories and looking at how God went about redeeming people and situations for his good. Uh, redemption is about God taking the not-so-good situations of our lives and working according to his matchless grace in order for things to end uh, in a good way for our good and his good uh, as well. You know, one of the things that uh, is being fiercely attacked in our world, in our culture right now, is the concept of the goodness of God, uh, that God is seen as good. Uh, uh, That's worth a whole whole longer discussion, but uh, just pay attention to that, that that the enemy is doing all that he possibly can to undermine uh, God's goodness. So uh, anyways, we're entering the Holy Week, the Holy Passion Week, And I would like to talk to you this morning about another redemption story found in the New Testament. It's about a man by the name of Simon, son of John. He also had another uh, name he went by, Cephas, but you probably know him better as Peter. Peter. Peter was one of the first to choose to follow Jesus You may remember the account of that. I'm going to give it to you in uh, just uh, abbreviated form. But Luke's gospel tells us that Peter and his brother Andrew had been out fishing. In fact, they had spent the whole night fishing and didn't catch a thing. They were, were, uh, I don't know how many of you went out trout fishing yesterday, but I think if I, I talked to Sean Hutchinson on the way in, He's an avid trout fisherman, and he caught nothing. But he wasn't out all night, as far as I know. Were you out all night? No, he wasn't out all night, but he caught nothing. Now, the whole point, if you don't know this already, the whole point of fishing is to catch stuff, (laughs) right? If If you don't catch stuff, it's really kind of a silly endeavor to go out and either in their case throw nets into the water and pull them back in or throw a fishing line out. Uh, If you don't catch anything, it kind of really defeats the whole point of of the whole process. So Peter and his brother Andrew had been out all night fishing. And uh, as they are there at shore cleaning up from the night of fishing, putting everything, you know, cleaning things, putting things away that they had used to be Fishing, Jesus is speaking just over to the side there. He's got an audience that he's addressing, and he's talking to them. And as the story is told by Luke, at one point, Jesus decides to gain a little better perspective of being able to preach from. He commandeers Peter's boat and starts teaching from the boat. 
And then as he finishes his lesson, he, he tells Peter and Andrew, and I assume they had some helpers, fishing helpers there, he said, I, I, it's time for you to go fishing again. You're going to put it back out into the deep water and you're going to catch some fish. And initially, Peter's like, dude, you're the itinerant preacher. Uh, you know, it's likely he didn't know what, 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 when it was, what was going on. But somehow, uh, in, in, in all of that, Peter says, well, okay, we'll do it. So they, they go back out fishing, and this time Jesus tells them uh, to put their nets there in the water on the other side of the boat. And you may have heard this part of the story before. They begin to bring in the nets, and uh, not only are the nets breaking because there's so many fish in the net, but it actually says their boat began to sink. Now that, that's a good day of fishing right there, <laughs> right? That, that's what you're there for. <clears throat> and so in that moment, Peter is so shook. He, he's so shaken to the core that what he and his buddies were unable to do, at the word of Jesus, they've got so many, they may have fished, it doesn't tell us exactly, but they were out there, remember, all night long, caught nothing, went out for a short duration, and there's fish all over the place, right? This fisherman, Jesus spoke his language, and it caused something to awaken within Peter about this man, Jesus. And it says, this is what it says. They pulled their boats to the shore, leaving everything, and followed Jesus. They had a, they had a, what the, what the Greek, the word in the Greek is called kairos. They had a kairos moment. Something shifted in their way of thinking to the point that they abandoned what they had previously done for a living, living and now were intent on following Jesus. Now, the, I tell you this capsulated version of what happened because it's important for you to know that because we're going to come, we're going to revisit this moment again and it's part of Peter's redemption story. You, but you, you need to know how it started or the other part won't make as much sense, okay? So Peter leaves all along with Andrew and they begin to follow uh, uh, Jesus. And for the next three years, Peter followed Jesus as one of his original 12 disciples. But it's important to note that Peter was not just one of the 12 Peter was part, I think John, Pastor Josh referenced this last week, with John. Peter was part of that inner circle that Jesus had. Uh, it says that only, only three were present when Jesus raised and performed the miracle concerning the daughter of Jairus. Only the three were present when Jesus was transfigured on Mount uh, Transfiguration. Uh, it tells us also that just uh, three of those three, Peter and John, John were given the particular task of getting ready the last Passover meal. And, uh, uh, and today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, 
uh, we are told that a couple of disciples went to get the donkey and make ready uh, for Jesus' ride in Jerusalem. And many commentators, although it's not said specifically, uh, that Peter was one of those two that went to make arrangements for uh, the donkey. There is plenty of evidence in Scripture that, G that Peter was a natural-born leader. And by virtue of that fact, Peter, by de facto, became the spokesman for the 12. In other words, we got 12 men coming from different places in life, and as they found themselves living together, doing life together with Jesus, Peter kind of seems to be the one who became the uh, leader of leaders among them, all right? <clears throat> There's no better example of this than when Jesus came to his disciples and said, who do the people, who do the crowds say that I am? And when you read that passage, you'll, you'll see it says, some said Elijah, others said John the Baptist uh, reincarnated and so forth and so on. Maybe one of the older prophets that's come back to life. But then Jesus said to the 12, he said, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who spoke up and said this, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A truth which Jesus said came to them, and of which Peter, as the spokesman told Jesus, came to them by divine insight, by divine understanding. Revelation is how they knew this. But then, it's, but then he calls out Peter specifically, and tells Peter, you are going to become a foundational stone in the building of my church. You, you Peter, are going to be instrumental in laying the foundation for what I'm about to do moving forward. All of this, as you read it and understand it, leaves little doubt that Peter was seen as a leader among the other leaders. But I have to tell you this morning, there was another side to Peter. And I want to tell you that Jesus was fully aware of that. I don't know how many of you know this this morning, but there's nothing you can hide from Jesus. And I want to say to you, our aptitude or our ability to do things does not, does not cancel out any ineptitude that we may have. I think we think that sometimes. It's like, well, I can do this. I'm able to do that. I, you know, this is how people see me. This is how I'd like to see myself. But then we, somehow we all know that we're not the bee's knees, right? There's some flaws about us, each of us. There were times when Peter showed himself to be impetuous to the point of rashness. Impetuous meaning he, he was a, the kind of guy that acted or went about doing something uh, without any thought or care as to the, the outcome of that. Some examples of that would be, you may remember Peter is famous for walking on water. Remember? 
He said, Jesus, uh, let me come out there and walk with you on the water, right? Like, like he, he wants to do it, right? But then as soon as he steps out onto the water, he starts to sink, right? Now, to be fair, to be fair, most of us think through things too much, right? That it, that it paralyzes us from even taking steps of faith. But, but Peter was the kind of person that's like, yeah, I'm doing it, and then he'd get himself into a bit of a pickle, right? Peter was the one, he was the one on Mount Transfigurations when Moses and Elijah showed up. He's like, Lord, you, wanna, you want me to put up some tents here so, so that they have some shelter, right? And in that moment, it says, a voice thundered from heaven and Peter ended up on the ground. Like, it, I, I, I kind of, remember when the, when, the, when the three, the scarecrow, the tin man, and the, uh, what was the other guy? And the lion walked in before Oz, and they're, they're, and then Oz thundered, and all of a sudden they're, they're, they're quaking on the ground. That was kind of Peter's reaction in this moment. It was Peter who, when Jesus was starting to discuss his eminent death and leaving them, that said to Jesus, that'll never happen to you, and you remember, may remember Jesus' rebuke was, a, in my mind, a little harsh. He, he referred to Peter as Satan. You know, it's kind of like that, that thing, like, like, you know, sometimes we speak before we, we measure our words. And then finally, even this week, as we uh, walk through what, all the things that took place this week, Peter was the one who drew his sword and whacked off one of the ears, remember? Only to have Jesus say, uh, put your sword away. The gospel portrays Peter as a man of extremes. At times, he was the best disciple there could have been. And at other times, the worst of the twelve. A man of faith and boldness, and yet at the same time, a man of weakness. That's why I think many readers, when you study the life of Peter, can really, we can identify with him. We can relate with him because I think we are in many ways much like him. But the part of his life story that I want to focus in on for our purposes here this morning is what happened on the evening of the Last Supper that would end up needing Peter to be redeemed and sadly what Peter would end up being known for throughout history. As mentioned a moment ago, Peter and John were commissioned by Jesus to make the necessary arrangements and preparations for the last Passover meal that they would celebrate together. It tells us that when that evening came, Jesus was having this meal with his disciples and he was taking the bread and the wine that would normally be at the meal and he was bringing new significance to it. We now celebrate communion with that understanding. And as they're sharing the meal together, um, it appears as though uh, a debate broke out, a dispute amongst the twelve 
over which one of them was the greatest. Kind of sad, isn't it? After three years in the presence of the servant of servants, here they are arguing about which one of them is more spiritual than the other. I always think it's sad when Christians do that. Jesus' response to that debate was to remind them in a short sermon about servanthood once again. And after Jesus' teachings to them about that, he goes to Peter personally and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. To sift as wheat is a metaphor that could also, you could also say it this way, Satan has asked to shake you apart. Satan has asked to break you down as a person. In the Old Testament, God used this metaphor or this image in one of his prophetic books named Amos concerning what he was going to do to Israel to break them apart, to break them down. In biblical times, they would take wheat or grain and they would run it through a sifter, a sieve, a strainer of sorts. And as that, as that uh, uh, tool was shaken violently, the dirt and impurities that had clung to the wheat or grain would be loosened from them so that there was just left the usable grain. In sifting Peter and the other disciples as wheat, Satan's goal was to crush them and have their faith in Jesus destroyed. But it is what Jesus says next that we, sh that we should hang on to during our own sifting. Jesus said to pray Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I told the guys at the men's group a couple weeks ago when I was starting to read all of this stuff afresh, I said, if there's one person we want praying for us, it's Jesus. You know, it's nice that we pray for one another, but I want to know Jesus is praying for me. Because if he's praying for me, it'll all turn out for the good. I want you to notice that Jesus did not say to Peter, I have prayed that you won't be sifted. He didn't say that. He didn't say, Peter, Satan wants to sift you. I'll take care of that for you. You won't have to be sifted at all. That's what we want. And a lot of times when we pray to God, that's what we're praying for. Lord, make it so that I don't have to get sifted. That's not what Jesus prayed. He said, I'll pray that as you are sifted, your faith won't fail. Jesus tells all the disciples that indeed they will fail him. They will all fall away. But as per Peter... Peter insists emphatically 
that even if all the others fall away, he will never, he will never, I will never fall away. He insists that he alone is willing to die and be imprisoned for him. To which Jesus says to Peter, listen, Pete, before the rooster, before the rooster starts to talk about the next day coming, you will, fall, you will fail, not once, not twice, but three times. And even with Jesus telling Peter that, Peter insists that it will never happen. Oops. That's a big oops. I think maybe we're getting a clear window or a clearer window into what needs to get sifted. <laughs> right? I will never. I'm willing to die for you. I'm, I'm willing to go to prison for you. You know, I got to say from experience that it's one thing for any of us to say something. It's a whole nother thing to do that. I can remember when Jody, years, Jody and I years ago, and we were, you know, we were totally engaged in the pro-life movement and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna do this. And I can remember the day like it was yesterday when we sat in a, in a, uh, we sat in, it was a stairwell of a building of an abortion clinic up in Buffalo. And the Buffalo police came into that uh, stairwell and they said, if you don't get up and leave right now, you're going to jail. And I can remember everything within inside of me saying to myself, I want to leave right now. I, in fact, I think I said something like this, Mommy! <laughs> you know, at the rally the night before, we were all like, yes, we'll go to jail, we'll go, right? But then the moment arrives. That's a different deal. That's a whole different deal. I don't think Peter had thought this through. So Jesus has to tell him, no, Peter, you're going to fail. Remember I told you you're going to get sifted? Well, it starts right now. We know the story, right? On that very night, Jesus is arrested, taken to the house of the high priest. It tells us that Peter, to his credit, followed the processional, but at a distance. And as the processional went all the way to the high priest's house, Peter, it tells us, stationed himself outside at the courtyard area warming himself by a fire. 
As he is there, people began to notice him. That always happens. And one person begins to suspect that he's a follower of Jesus. The first time he was asked about it, Peter simply says, you don't know what you're talking about. A little while later, a second person questions him about it, and it says specifically he denied it. On the third occasion, the evidence had become overwhelming that he indeed was a follower of Christ, and they accused him this time. And then it tells us this third time, Peter began to curse himself and swear that, I don't know the man. Now, just to be clear, Peter wasn't dropping F-bombs at this point, all right? When it says that he began to curse himself and swear, it's, it's not like he was going on a tirade of words. I don't even know if that word was around back then, but uh, I'm sure they had swear words, right? I, just to make it clear, that's not what Peter was doing. He wasn't going on a, on a swearing binge, right? What was taking place here was an attempt to avoid his own punishment. Peter took an official judicial denial and added an oath that tempts punishment. It went something like this. Let it be done to me. If I, I'm telling you, I don't know the man. And let it be done to me twice as much if I'm not telling you the truth. You know, I think we say something like, I swear on my mother's grave. Or I swear on the Bible. That's what Peter was doing here. He was, he was saying, I'm telling you that I'm telling you that I'm telling you I don't know the man. And if I'm lying, let double the punishment come to me. I think it's significant that the Bible tells us that in that moment, the eyes of Jesus and Peter met. <laughs> Let me tell you what was happening here. Peter, in his panic, dares God to punish him because he's swearing before God. He, he dares God to punish him for lying while he's lying. In that moment, when Peter's eyes and Jesus' eyes meet, Peter had been caught lying about his relationship with God to God. Let that settle in for just a moment. Peter had just been caught by God about lying about his relationship to God. This is the bottom of Peter's redemption arc. Remember I told you week one 
how our redemption story goes. Everything's going along fine, 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 fine. Then the bottom falls out. And then the process of redemption begins to turn, right? This is Peter's bottom. This is the moment that their eyes locked. Have you ever been caught in a lie? The rest of you are lying right now. The rest of you are lying right now. Did you ever notice that when you've been caught lying and you make eye contact, there's something going on there? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like, well, not me. No, no, I didn't do it. There's something about this, about being able to look somebody in the eye or the inability to look somebody in the eye when you're lying. I think, I think Jesus said that the eyes are a window into a man's soul. I think there's the conscience and stuff is all wired to that and somehow we have a hard time having normal eye contact with while we're in the process of trying to lie. So Peter finds himself at the bottom of this ark and it tells us that he went out and he wept bitterly. Jesus, I think, beyond just the disappointment that I'm sure was in that glance between he and Jesus, I think what happened here is Peter, maybe for the first time, swallowed the bitter pill about himself. I think he's maybe for the first time saw who he really, really was. The whole of who Peter was had just been exposed. So somebody might ask, so where was Peter while Jesus was being crucified? Well, we don't know for sure, but we are given some indication. Luke in his gospel in chapter 23 says this in verses 48 and 49, when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight, meaning the crucifixion, saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him stood at a distance and watched these things. Was Peter there? We don't know for sure, but it's likely that he was watching what was taking place. At a distance. And another one that would seem to indicate that in Acts 3.15, in Peter's own words, when speaking, he said, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. So it's likely that Peter was somewhere in the distance. And I don't think it was just geographically in the distance. But I think he was probably at a distance relationally. Peter's faith had not completely failed, but it was definitely on life support. But as we've been saying week after week after week, our God is a God of redemption. 
His redemptive work in Peter's heart started just after the resurrection. Mark's gospel alone tells us that when the women went to the tomb to care for Jesus' body, the angels were there and greeted them with the good news of Christ's resurrection. But they had some direction for those ladies. They had some things for them to do. And in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But go and tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. And when you read the other accounts, you indeed find out that that's just what the women did. They went and they told the disciples and Peter what they had heard. Now, for a moment, can you imagine Peter in his, in his sense of failure, in his sense of having been caught, lying to God about God, his sense of weeping bitterly. Can you imagine when these ladies said, hey, we got some good news to tell you guys. We just went to Jesus' tomb. His, he wasn't there. And we met these angels. And these angels tell, told us to come and tell you that Jesus has risen. Oh, by the way, Peter, they specifically said to tell you. Can you imagine what Peter's thinking in that moment? He's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you sure they said to tell me? Are you sure? Did they mention my name? Yes, Peter. They specifically mentioned your name. Can you picture, can you see the wheels turning in him? He's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Maybe, maybe there's still some hope here. They mention my name. They mention my name. Is it any wonder that the Bible tells us that after they said that, Peter outran every, everybody else to try to get to the tomb? They mentioned my name. They said to tell me. At that point, Peter, Peter had to be wondering whether he was still on the team or not, right? And they're saying, hey, Peter, uh, we don't know why, but they said to make sure we tell you. He's thinking, wait a minute. Maybe I'm still on the team. Maybe I still, maybe I didn't, maybe Jesus didn't see that. No, he had to have. We, our eyes met. I know they saw it. He saw it. He heard it. We know shortly after this moment occurred that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. We know that Peter was a part of the mix because it tells us in Luke's gospel, in verse, chapter 24, verse 34, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. So, so one of the first people that Jesus showed up to reveal himself was Peter. Peter. But I got to believe 
that even though I'm sure Peter was thrilled that Jesus was alive again, that this story didn't end with him forsaking Jesus, dying, end of story, right? I mean, I'm, not, I'm, really, I'm very certain that Peter was thrilled that Jesus was alive again, but I still think, I still believe there was an elephant in the room. It's like, great, well, good, I'm glad you're alive again. But, but, our eyes met. Something happened there. And we're going to have to deal with that. The outcome of that awkwardness leads Peter to go back to fishing. I think that's, I think we're all familiar with that. When we feel like we failed, I think it's tempting for us to go back to what's familiar to us. John's account tells us that Peter and a few other disciples went fishing in the Sea of Tiberias. And that they had fished all night and caught nothing. Well, my, 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 where have we heard that before? It tells us that Jesus from the shore hollers out to them. And he says, throw your nets on the other side of the boats. And you'll catch some. They do, as was instructed by them at this point from someone on the shore, they don't know for sure who it is. But they take the hollerer's advice, throw the nets on the other side of the boat, and it tells us that on this occasion, Again, their nets are so full that they can't, they're having a difficult time getting all the fish into the boat. You see what ha what's happening here? If you don't now, I'm going to explain it to you. When Peter comes to the awareness of what's actually happening, and who it is standing on the shore calling out orders, it tells us he jumps into the water and, he can't, and about, 100 yards, uh, about 100 yards out, he can't get to the shore fast enough, right? I think Peter understood, maybe for the first time, That this happened, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me think this through. This happened when Jesus first met me. This whole fishing thing. This happened the first time, and I remember when that happened the first time, I said, Jesus, I'm a sinful man, get away from me. And instead of him leaving me or pushing me away, he actually invited me to join his team. 
And here I am again. It says in many ways, though we're back at the beginning, doing a start over moment, and instead of telling me he doesn't want to know me, he doesn't deny knowing me. He said, he told them to say, make sure you tell Peter. And now, he's inviting me once again to be on his team. It tells us in those passages that Jesus had actually showed up ahead of this moment and made a breakfast for them. And it tells us specifically that the ingredients of that breakfast were some fish and some bread. As they're coming in from being out fishing, Jesus then directs them to bring some of the fish to him. Now remember, he's already made breakfast with fish and bread. Where he got the fish, I don't know. Remember, by virtue of his advice, he seems like he's a pretty good fisherman, right? <laughs> so there they are on the shore of the sea. The smell of breakfast is in the air. And Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me more than these? Now, I'm sure most of you in this room have, have heard at some point the interplay of how love gets used in this discourse. Jesus uses the word agape, which is a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that's willing to do something you don't want to do, right? And when Peter responds to him, Lord, you know that I love you, he uses the word phileo, which is a, a, a tender love, a caring love, a, a friendship type of love, a brotherly love. My point here this morning is not to talk about the, you, the nuances of what went on there. I'd rather focus on, for our purposes this morning, of, as a concerning what Jesus meant when he said these. Do you love me more than these? Now, some people translate or interpret that to mean he was talking about the other disciples. I don't think that's the case, personally, because if Jesus was... Remember what Peter's problem was. Who's the greatest? It wasn't just his problem. I think it was all their problem. Jesus is not going to set up a scenario where they're getting back into competition with who loves, who loves more, right? Which disciple loves me more? He's sifting him. He's sifting that out of him. I think that when Jesus said, 
bring some of that, those fish that you've caught. I don't think it was so he could fix them and they could eat them. I think he wanted to use them as an object lesson. And when Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these? He was pointing to the fish. What did the fish represent? His life apart from Jesus. Do you love your old life? Or do you want to feed my sheep? Do you want your old life? Or are you willing to follow me into a new life? And then the third time, remember, he does it three times. Peter gets upset the third time. Do you love me more than these? Then feed my lambs. I think Peter got upset because Jesus was taking him back to the three times he said, He didn't know him. You know, when you get a sliver, before you can get well from that sliver, we've got to inflict a little more pain. You know, when our kids, or even myself, when when my kids would come to me with a sliver, and they're like, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. Okay, let me get the needle and tweezers. It's going to hurt a little more. No, don't do it. No, I can't. I can't. Don't, please. Oh, that's me, not my kids. I'm like, oh. <laughs> right? I think that's what Peter, Jesus was needing to pull the sliver out. And in order to do that, he had to take Peter back to the beginning. And he had to take Peter back to that moment when their eyes met. Remember? I saw you. I heard what you said. God, God is, he, listen, his heart is our redemption. His heart is to bring all the healing to us we possibly need. But in order for that to happen, he's got to take out the sliver in all of our hearts. In order for that to happen, there must be some sifting that occurs. You no sifting, no redemption. No healing. Listen, in order for the circuit of redemption to close and there to be legitimate redemption, uh, let's just think of it in uh, in terms of our initial salvation. We have to admit that I'm a sinner. That's painful. That's humbling. But we have no redemption apart from that. Can't just say, well, I'm glad Jesus died for me. Okay, I guess I believe that. I'm all in. No! 
I have to say, I need saved. That's the problem. Much of Christianity has become so shallow because nobody wants to admit. And again, part of what we're dealing with in our culture is you can't even say there's such a thing as sin anymore. You can't say that. You're not allowed to say that. Because if we say that, it'll make somebody feel bad. Listen, if you don't feel bad, if you don't deal with the sliver, you ain't getting no redemption. So Peter, looking to redeem, or Jesus, looking to redeem Peter's situation, says, listen, Peter, I know everything. You have, nothing has been hidden from us, me. And we got to go back to the beginning. We got to start over. We got to, we got to, we got to take care of what we, we got. And so they have a little talk. They have this talk. And I just want to say to you, and I'll close with this. We know how instrumental Peter was. He was, he did indeed become a foundational stone, a foundational rock in the building of Christ's church. Last week, Pastor Josh said to us that in John's redemption story, there are things that happen to us that aren't a result of our faults or our failures. And God has a way of redeeming those situations but this morning, what I'm talking to you about is those situations in our lives where we are the failures, where we do screw up. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because we've all screwed up. And can I just say, we continue to screw up. But I have good news for you. God goes out of his way. Jesus didn't have to show up on that shore where they were fishing. But he did if he wanted to see Peter redeemed. God goes out of his way to bring healing to our hearts and to get us back in the game, even if it has been our fault. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I always like it when people have a revelation of God's degree of love for them. I love that. It's like, oh man, I, I can see it now. I can see that God loves me. I mean, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. But do you know there's another side to that coin? It's awesome when we get a revelation of that for us personally. But the other side of that coin is, that's great. I'm glad that you understand how much God loves you now. Now, the issue becomes, the other side of the coin is, how are you going to live your life in such a way that demonstrates your love for God? Are we going to love God in return by letting go of the things that hold us back 
to do his will for our lives. Only then, only then, is the true circuit of redemption made complete. Scott, do you want to come, please? I want to pray this morning. I, I think I'm among, I'm among uh, good company here this morning. Maybe, we, maybe, maybe you're not here this morning and, and you've been confronted by the same uh, you know, type of situation that Peter was by being asked if you're one of his followers. Or maybe you have. But I'm quite confident here this morning that all of us have had moments when, when we just did not, we, did just, we just didn't follow through for Jesus. Our lives just did not reflect his work in our lives. I just want to say to you and to myself this morning, there's healing. There's healing for that. And God doesn't want you to stay benched. I can't tell you how many people I've met over the course of my ministry when they're just like, yeah, what I did, God could never forgive me for that. That is a lie. That is a full bull. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you've been with, who you haven't been with. I don't care what you've drank, smoked, whatever. Whatever. There is forgiveness. There is healing. There is redemption in Jesus Christ. He, he has come. He has come to find you. He is right now coming to find you and to fix that so you can get on with the good stuff that he has for you in life. I would like you to stand with me this morning. I'm asking you all to stand because we're all in the same boat here this morning. Father God, I thank you that Peter was Peter. That you didn't go to the ivory towers of intellectualism of the day to find those who would follow you. You went to a seashore. You found some rude and crude fishermen, a tax collector, uh, uh, people that were on the fringes of culture and society. You knew, you knew their, their aptitudes and you knew their ineptitudes. You knew their strengths, you knew their weaknesses. Lord, as we stand here before you this morning, we're of similar kind, Lord. Ordinary people just trying to eke out a living in this life, Lord. And Lord, as we stand before you here this morning, you know our strengths and you certainly know our failures. Lord, for all of us that are here today that wrestle and struggle with our 
our moments in life when we didn't shine, Lord. When we know in our heart, in our conscience, maybe our physical eye didn't meet your eye, but we know in our hearts our eyes met. And we fell short of honoring and glorifying you. Lord, for anyone that's here this morning that has used that occasion to see themselves benched for life, off the team, no longer regarded as someone worthy to be uh, uh, a part of the team, Lord, I'm praying in Jesus' name. And right now, Lord, right in this very moment, that you would have a heart-to-heart with them that your Holy Spirit would be at work in their souls right now, just uh, welcoming them back as they simply admit and are honest with you about our failures, Lord. Yes, Lord, I know. You want me to love you with the selfless love, but all I can tell you right now is I really like you a lot. That's who we are. If we're honest with ourselves, that's who we are. And you say, you, 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 don't, you don't coax us and coax us and coax us and coax us until we somehow say those words and don't mean it. You simply said, all right, if you like me a lot, then get on with what I've called you to do. Just do it. Just get out there. Start doing it. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you that we don't have to be perfect that you're willing to take these broken vessels, Lord, and use them, pouring something out that's of your making, Lord. Lord, as we go through the siftings of life, I'm praying that each of us will see them for what they are, and that if the enemy tries to take us out, Lord, we would be reminded, you are praying for us. You You, the God of the universe, is praying for us that our faith would not fail. Hallelujah. God of redemption, we love you. There's no other God like you. The other gods, when people fail them, you're out. You're out. With you, as long as we stay in that batter's box, We can swing and miss and just keep on playing the game. I thank you for that. Bring healing to your people, Lord. Help us to stop arguing about who's the greatest and get on with the good stuff you've called us to. We love you, Lord. And we're so thankful you love us. In Jesus' name I pray.